It was in uh, August, August of 96 that uh, Marty and I did a, a trip, not a big trip, medium-sized trip maybe, for our 25th uh, anniversary. <coughs> and uh, we were living in Winnipeg and the trip included uh, Lake Havasu City in Arizona, as well as in Oklahoma City on when we went home to Winnipeg. The reason that uh, we went to Lake Havasu was because I had had a summer pastorate there back in 1970. That was between uh, Bible college and seminary. And uh, the locals there were kind of uh, puzzled that us Canadians would come down there at that time of year um, <laughs> when the, the temperature was pretty warm. I actually enjoyed reliving the experience of 114 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, uh, but Marty wasn't convinced. She was not exactly comfortable with that. Um, but on our way home, as I said, we spent a couple days in Oklahoma City. Now, uh, when you live in Winnipeg, I think you can understand why Oklahoma City would be on the way home, because it's essentially straight south uh, of uh, Winnipeg. And uh, we had thought before we went that we weren't going to seek out the site of the bombing that had happened about a year and a half before, unless it sort of came about naturally, because we, we didn't want to be gawking at uh, their uh, tragedy. However, one day downtown, we saw a news clipping on the window of a coffee shop about the bombing and realized that, hey, it's probably in this immediate area. And so we got good direction and we went to the site. And uh, I, have, I have a sense that the locals were actually affirmed rather than uh, turned off uh, by our interest, you know, that we, that we cared, that we were interested in what had happened there. But what a sobering sight. A uh, neighboring building with windows that had been broken, blown out, and then, of course, the site itself, which uh, there was nothing left. And uh, personal items, memorial items left on the mesh and inside the fence, and uh, things like uh, teddy bears and notes and pictures, 150, 168 lives lost, 19 of them children, this was on the morning of April the 19th, 1995. And all of this because someone chose to do this evil thing, deliberately bombed this uh, federal building. That's a long time ago now. That's, uh, I think that's 23, 24 years ago, or 21 years maybe, whatever, do the math. But that kind of evil has not decreased. The list is as long as you want to make it, you could, however much time you got. Since then, we've had 9-11 scores of suicide bombings, several wars, and, uh, and then, of course, most current, the shootings in two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, the last count I heard, 50 people killed. And uh, the gunman wanting the whole world to see, taping a camera on his helmet. And uh, in some ways, 
Maybe it's good that much of the world can see the horror, lest we forget. Not good that people are forced to watch that, certainly not children. But uh, I am concerned that there is a tendency to forget. I've heard some figure, I don't remember what the exact figure is, but there are a number of Holocaust deniers. And so we need that kind of information. And in a way, maybe it can backfire on the person, on the cause that the whole world is watching. And then, of course, nine people killed in a... Uh, no, uh, two years ago, Bis Bissonette killed six Muslims in a mosque in Quebec, okay? And then many examples of Christians being killed in their place of worship. In June 2015, nine were killed in a black church, and that was in South Carolina. And that was by a white supremacist. And then in uh, 2017, there were 26 people killed in First Baptist Church in Texas. Uh, in, uh, also in 2017, ISIL attacked and killed 16 in a Pakistani church. And so there continues to be evil, what we call moral evil, because they are perpetrated by the choice of some human being or beings. And of course, we mustn't think that evil is only in these outstanding situations, but you think of the number of children that have been molested, uh, the number of women that have been raped, the robberies, uh, all kinds of evil, moral evil. And then, of course, there's the other kind of evil. We, philosophically, we refer to things like earthquakes and so on uh, as uh, natural evil, things that are very, very difficult in this world. But earthquakes, tsunamis, floods, famines, and currently we have the tropical cyclone that has killed last count, or last I saw more than 700 people in Malawi, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe. And uh, the news headline says tens of thousands will need help. And then there are accidents that happen. Uh, no intention on the part of some people, but accidents, uh, like the Ethiopian uh, plane crash that we just heard about. And, uh, and then the Humboldt uh, hockey team, 16 people killed. And again, it was not intentional. But I think in a sense you can put it in the category of natural evil. Terrible things happen. Uh, the problem of evil, both natural and moral. And they raise the question, why? Why so much suffering? Why so many tragedies in the world? And uh, it raises a challenge to faith. If God is good and loving and as powerful as you Christians say he is, how come this happens? If he's all-powerful and he's all-loving, you know, it doesn't quite make sense. And... Uh, the question might well be the most compelling intellectual challenge to our faith. <clears throat> I just picked up a book uh, recently uh, written by Mark Clark, founding pastor of Village Church in Vancouver. And uh, it's a book dealing with the kinds of issues, real issues, that skeptics raise. 
And uh, this may very well be the, the most uh, challenging or the most prominent problem. He says there was a national poll, uh, and it asked the question, if you could ask God one question, and you knew that he would give an answer, what would you ask? The most common response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Yeah, what's where it's at? It's reality. People wonder why. And of course it raises questions in ourselves as well, I'm sure. And all kinds of questions. How come we are so fortunate, you know, up until now? And, uh, of course, the big question, where is God when it hurts? Tragedies are as old as recorded history and suffering and reported in both the Old and the New Testament. Well, in the account that we just read earlier in Luke, Jesus is actually responding and commenting upon, not giving, not giving answers, but he's responding and he's commenting on both kinds of evil. There is the moral evil there, as well as what we might call natural evil. Uh, there's the chosen evil, the governor, Pilate, has some Jews slaughtered at the very time they were offering a sacrifice to God. Luke describes it as the, uh, the blood of the sacrifice and the blood of these people slaughtered were, uh, you know, mingled. And that might be a metaphorical, it may be literal, or it might be a metaphorical way of saying in the very context of offering sacrifice, they were being slaughtered. And, uh, and so they, they raised that question. Luke 13, 1, now there were some present at that time, okay, maybe Jesus hadn't heard about it, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. A little bit like what we've been talking about. People slaughtered in the context of their particular worship. We don't really know any more about the instance, but Pilate's position as governor of a troubled province, uh, Galilee, was precarious. And uh, Galileans were especially susceptible to riot. And so maybe it was his way of uh, holding them in line. Well, we don't really know. But in telling Jesus about the incident, they are obviously wanting him to comment on it. I mean, after all, you're a teacher. What do you say about that? Or uh, maybe they were, you know, hoping he would take aside if they were against him. Maybe they hoped he would, you know blunder and say something political that they could challenge. Maybe they were just curious. What do you say about that? It's a very real incident. Well, in his response, he refers to another tragic incident as well. Uh, this one was an accident. A tower fell and killed 18 people. And so here you have these two kinds of tragedies. One is the moral evil. The other is more a, a natural kind of evil. Uh, do you think, and then he goes on uh, to talk about the other, do you think that these Galileans uh, were, uh, were sinners? And then, uh, then he goes on to the other one in verse 4. Those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Well, how does he respond to this now? Two kinds of tragedies come to his attention. One he brings before them, the other they bring before him. And I want to say uh, three things especially about that. 
how Jesus responds to this horror. And then the fourth thing has to do with a concluding short point. But the first one is this. Jesus addressed the reality of human sin. Do you think, he says, that these were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? And he says, no, I tell you. And, uh, you know, he's, he's pointing out here that all are sinners. And he adds his own example where the tower fell on these others. But he makes it clear that these people who had the accident are not worse sinners, as well as these people who Pilate attacked and slaughtered. Not worse sinners than the others. But he says, no, not, not worse. See, in Jewish thinking, in this context and culture, there was the thinking that calamity was caused by personal sin. And uh, we see that reflected in uh, John chapter 9. No less than these disciples of Jesus asked the question. They saw this man that was born blind. And so they asked him, did this man do the sin or his parents? And Jesus said, uh, neither. His blindness is for the glory. It'll be an opera. I'm going to, I'm going to, he didn't say that then, but it'll end up being for God's glory because he was about to heal him. And, uh, but, you know, that was the thinking. If you read Job recently, you will see that was the thinking there and how that the so-called Job's comforters were trying to interrogate him and put him in a corner and say, you must have done something wrong. And that was the thinking. And, you know, I'm wondering, are we really free from that kind of thinking? You know? I don't know how sincere we are, but sometimes we'll say things like, what did she do to deserve this? Or what have I done that I should have to go through this kind of thing, you know? It's kind of like uh, bad things should never happen to people who are good. That good people should have the best of everything. That they should be able to sail through life unscathed and then on into eternity. And then when something bad happens... Well, they must have done something bad. And of course, if you look into your life, you can always find something. <laughs> you can always, uh, the guilt uh, factory is very active. Am I being punished? I wonder were the inquirers expecting Jesus to say something about the victims of these tragedies as an explanation? But no, he doesn't blame the victims. Clearly, he is not allowing the thought that the victims were singled out because they were worse and deserved it more than others. But he doesn't refer to them as innocent either. He doesn't say that they were not sinners, but he was saying they're no worse than anyone else. In fact, he's saying we're all sinners, or not himself, but you're all sinners. And then you need to deal with that. And so here he's confirming what the Bible teaches in so many places, that all are sinners, including those who died. And the Bible teaches that death and suffering came as a result of sin. And Jesus affirms here what the Bible teaches in many places. All are sinners. 
Worse? No, is the answer. Not worse. But he says, unless you repent, you too are going to perish. Now, um, we see this, and we've referred to that already, about uh, Jewish uh, thinking. But he doesn't blame the victims. But you know that all are sinners. Uh, it's kind of a not popular view today because uh, we live in a society uh, where so many people are oblivious um, or, or the idea of moral evil is almost like it's, it's repul repulsive to them, uh, universal sinfulness. Um, we live in a society where there's a hesitancy uh, to attach, attach morality to anything. Um, in his book, uh, uh, in, in his book about the Bible that Jesus read, Yancey refers to a professor, uh, Alan, the late professor, Alan Bloom, and he told about asking his undergraduate class at the University of Chicago to identify an evil person. Okay? Shouldn't be that hard. Identify an evil person. And, uh, and he says that not one student could do so. Evil simply did not exist as a category in their minds. Now that's, I don't know when that book was written, maybe 20 years ago. I, I, I doubt if things have changed. And uh, that's one reason why I think it's so important for us to talk about what I'm talking about this morning. And that relates to that I'm not totally sad that the video, that there was a video shot of this horror that took place. But think of that, the inability to recognize and identify evil. And uh, Bloom said that that is a perilous sign in our society. Well, how did Jesus respond to it? Number one, he addressed the reality of human sin. Number two, Jesus put the emphasis on response. Not the why, but the how. Not why did this happen, but what are we going to do about it? How are we going to respond to this? Let's talk about how to respond. And that's what he's doing here. He says, unless you repent. Unless you repent. Don't be concerned about why this happened, but unless you repent, you too are going to... Uh, Perish, he says, let it be a wake-up call. Take responsibility. Put your house in order. Because of universal sin, all have personal guilt, and therefore all must take responsibility, and everyone will be held accountable. And these uh, victims of Pilate and the victim, victims of the accident, they perished physically, but all who do not repent will perish spiritually they will face judgment. And there's a, there's a factor here too that for them death came suddenly. And think about these incidents that we've been talking about, current. People on that Ethiopian uh, airplane, they perished quickly. Just, uh, what, just a few minutes after takeoff and it happened. And the people who were shot in at places of worship, happens quickly. And he says... Uh, unless you repent. We all have guilt, and we all will be held responsible 
and we all have to stand before God and so prepare, repent. I think it's interesting that throughout the Gospels, Jesus' goal was to influence people to repent. He was known as a friend of King James, publicans and sinners, friend of the marginalized, friends of those who did not have a good reputation, but always in that, you know, describing this, it was so that they might repent. He wanted to see them. His hope was always that they might come to repentance. And that word refers to change, turning around, going the other way. And uh, repentance is when I decide that I'm not the best one to master my life, and so I surrender my life to the Lord. And uh, we may think of it as a once-only affair. You know, I repent, I choose to follow Christ, I get baptized, I identify myself as a Christian in that way, and I'm part of the church, and so on and so forth. But repentance needs to also be a day-by-day kind of thing. I think you know that. We do things that, whoops, we need to repent. Turn around. Repent. Jesus emphasized regarding suffering and tragedy. Well, response. Dealt with response. And I notice there's a pattern in the New Testament and elsewhere that response. How are you going to handle it? How are you going to handle your pain and suffering and persecution? Emphasis is on response. Case in point, well known, I think, is James 1, 2, and 3, where James says, count it all joy. I mean, come on. I think, I think today it will be hard for people to, uh, to accept what James is saying. But that's what he says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And so that's the call here. It's the response. Jesus, how did he deal with it? He addressed the reality of human guilt. And secondly, he called, he dealt, he emphasized the response to it. But then there's a third one. And here's where we need to join with Jesus. Jesus, number three, ministered to alleviate suffering. And now I'm looking at the broader life of Jesus, not just what's in this text in Luke 13, but looking at his life in a broader way. He ministered to alleviate suffering. And so often we see how that in the face of human suffering, he was moved. He acted in mercy, with compassion. He healed people. He fed the hungry. He freed people from demon possession. He raised the widow's only son from death. And in that passage, Luke tells us that when he saw her, his heart went out to her. Or other translations, he was filled with compassion. His heart went out to all those who suffered. Uh, But those many deeds that he did were not only to alleviate the suffering, but they were also signs that God's kingdom had invaded the present age. When John the Baptist came to prepare people for the coming of Jesus, proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then when Jesus began his public ministry, his message was, repent for the 
kingdom of heaven is near. And then later, John from prison sends word to Jesus asking, are you the one that, that was meant to come? He's having doubts about that, and I don't blame him. Being now in prison, he wasn't supposed to go that way. And so he says, are, are, you, are you the one? And then Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. But all of these ministries, they counter the curse. They are contrary and counter the curse that came upon the present age, which, according to the Apostle John, operates in the realm of evil. Now that's, that's a hard one, but we have to look at it carefully. First John 5.19, we know that we are sent from God. See, we belong to the kingdom of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What in the world does that mean? But it gives a little bit of understanding to these horrible things that are happening. The whole world is in the power of the evil one. Obviously, God is sovereign, and he has ultimate control. But there's something sobering here, not to be minimized, that because of sin, the world was cursed, and evil has been given a certain amount of reign. And it's very troubling. But Jesus came to announce the reign of God, a movement against his dominion, an invasion against the devil's dominion, an invasion, a reclaiming of the rightful lordship of him. But that would take him all the way to the cross to suffer in order to conquer the powers of evil. And we talk about unjust things that happen. Relatively innocent people being slaughtered. But the most unjust evil of all was the death by crucifixion of the only one who was sinless, the Son of God. And that was the act that accomplished the greatest good. And so in this way he provided redemption so that we could be set free from that regime. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. <clears throat> That's the reign of the devil that I was talking about. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so currently then we have two kingdoms operating in tension. And as those who belong to his kingdom, we await his coming when he will completely conquer the powers of evil when he re returns in power and judgment. But in the meantime, our call is to be partnering with him, to participate with him, and to work towards that time when his kingdom comes and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like the Father's Prayer. Interesting temptation. Uh, part of it says, um, you know, thy, uh, thy kingdom come, anticipating the consummation. But then the next request is, thy will be done on earth. <laughs> and uh, that's here and now. And so we pray for kingdom values to prevail here and now, even as we anticipate the final coming. But here's a challenge that I want us to take with us. How can we pray 
for his will to be done on earth unless we are acting also to help that happen. Unless we are involved in alleviating the pain, the suffering, the kinds of things that Jesus did. Communicating the word of redemption, the gospel, and then softening the harshness of the evil, which is a result of the curse, which is what Jesus did in his mercy, his compassion, his grace. He softened the harshness from sin. And what he said in Matthew 25 was that would be the litmus test of who really belongs to him and who doesn't. He said, the sheep, my sheep, they are those who alleviated the pain caused by sin. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. See, all of those, all of those are instances where the harshness of evil has hurt people. And his people, his sheep, are those to help to alleviate that kind of pain. How did Jesus address the reality of evil, the harshness, the tragedy of this world? He didn't spare. He addresses the reality of sin. He emphasizes how you deal with it, how you respond. And then he ministered to alleviate, to soften the pain, the suffering. You know, I was, I was impressed with the Prime Minister of New Zealand. I don't know if she's a Christian or not, but what she did was pretty Christian. When she got in there and she was just doing what she could to comfort those hurting people, alleviate, soften the blow, the pain. But I want, to clo- I want to close with the strongest one of all. It kind of embraces the other. How did Jesus deal with the pain, harshness? And that is, he took it on himself, the cross. On the cross, God in Christ. Remember the Trinity at this point. It's not as if they were separated. But God, in the person of Christ, took on the suffering from sin upon himself. My goodness, why doesn't, why doesn't he keep terrible things from happening? Oh, but guess what? He took on the pain on himself. He took it all on himself. There is mystery in why God should allow so much suffering. But the one thing that stands out, though he has allowed evil, tragedy, suffering, in Christ he personally fully embraced it and experienced it. And so in him we have a suffering God. He suffers with us and with those who suffer. Where was God when the bombing occurred? The earthquake the cyclone, the tornado, my mother's cancer, uh, my father's abuse, where was he? The same place as when Jesus hung on the cross. He suffered with us and suffered for us. Let's pray.
Father, I know we've dealt with something heavy, but it's the way things are. And Lord, you have come into our life the way things are. You have embraced us in our reality. We pray that we might rest assured and encouraged that whatever we face, we're not alone, but you are with us. And then at the same time that uh, we, will, we will be at peace, but then also that we will you know, roll up our sleeves to participate with you in alleviating suffering which is all around us. And Lord, not necessarily having to look for big things, but even little things that you bring to our attention. Father, may we be faithful participants with Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.